Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. I, I think that we will talk about the very last book I read, PJ, and that's the uh, part one of The Brathius Legacy by J.S. Latshaw, and this is Threat Below. What? This is a very interesting book. It, it touches on a lot of themes. There's some religious themes. There's some philosophical themes. But at the same time, it's kind of a YA novel, and it also has some sci-fi elements. Um, it just It's, it's genre-spanning, and it covers a lot of things. Hmm. Um, but it's the Kith, which are the last remaining humans. There are 100 of them, and they're living up a mountain. And this is, you know, for them, it's called, it's called Mountaintop. It's the tallest place on Earth, and they're the last humans. And they've been there for two or 300 years. So they don't know really anything else. And they live a very simple life. They don't have electricity. Um, you know, they don't have a lot of modern conveniences. They don't have weapons at the beginning of the, of the book, but some do appear. And um, what? even though there's only 100 of them, and they keep a strict population control of 100, they still have two classes. The cognates, which are the kind of ruling class, um, they're about a third of the population, and the other two-thirds of the veritas. So the veritas do the physical work. And there's this inbuilt shame that when the threat below came and humanity had to run up a mountain and hide, the veritas, the physical race, should have done better to protect them. They didn't really. While the cognates, who are the thinking ruling class, well, they're very smart, and they've developed a way to live up the mountain, so they've done their job. But actually, it turns out the cognates are, aren't really any more clever than the Veritas. Right. Um, and, and the Veritas are supposed right, yeah. to be hunters, and they hunt things called ultra lions and ultra bears. But these are just like raccoons and small woodland animals. Um, and they pretend <laughs> they're hunting. Okay. And they decide... Um, sound like proper lads. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Ice and, La- and Ad, Adrian and, and, and Iceland, they decide eventually to go beyond this wall that's been built around the mountain has all these signs in all the different old languages you know all the earthly languages saying warning you know actung and all this kind of stuff and um they go beyond the wall and they discover the threat belows which are essentially sort of monsters they have some human-like qualities but they're definitely not human uh, and they are monsters and it's this um Uh, not too many spoilers now well, no, I mean, I, I'm not going to spoil it. I, I specifically decided I'm only going to talk really about the first two fits of the novel. Okay. Um, I don't really even want to hit, maybe, the, you know, I don't really want to go beyond halfway, maybe not even halfway. Um, because the, the twists and turns the book takes are so unexpected that it would just spoil it to say them. But right, okay. we, we do touch on like a lot of, there's a Mount Olympus type vibe. There's some religious stuff going on. But essentially they meet these monsters when they go down. And that, that's really where I want to stop. Um, I guess I'll just say that you know they're not necessarily all bad, uh, but I want to leave it at that. Um, okay. Some of the themes in this are a lot of morality themes are covered in terms of like how we treat other other people and other species and things, and um, religion comes into it. And mm-hmm. it was a really really fun read. It took me by surprise. At the point where I've covered, it's a more or less simple story, and then it just turns into a whole other thing. And um, I, I'd recommend it. I'm going to read the second one, hopefully, but I'd recommend it to everyone. Um, okay. Yeah, I would love to read it. Uh, hold on, my PJ. Wish uh, I could. Yeah. Just on that note, I think I hear the phone ringing. Should we? Should we pick up and see who's on the line? What do you mean? Well, yeah, sure. Oh, welcome to Books Boys. You got Dean and PJ both on the line. Who's calling? Uh, this hey. Is, uh, oh. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, this is Jason Latchaw. No. Ah, come on. Another coincidence. This is another this coincidence. Is... We have them every every month, PJ. We just Jason, how are you doing? We were just we were just talking about threat below. Oh wow, that is a coincidence. I think I just had this burning desire to give two guys I've never met before a call. It's we and send it the, the you know, telepathic waves, you know. <laughs> what are the chances? You know. Wow, this is it's crazy. So just tell us quickly just a little bit about yourself. So threat below is the first book you've released. Is that right? Yes, that is correct. Yeah. Oh. And the sequel is already out, yeah? 
Yeah, the sequel came out about a year oh. ago. It's called A Gallery of Mothers. And uh, great title. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> very, very intriguing. Wait till you yeah, find it. I mean, it actually has a couple of different meanings, but there is one literal thing in the story that is a literal gallery of mothers. You, you okay? Okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and what's what's next after book two? Um, well, okay. So thank you for asking. I um, actually I finished a short kind of magical realism novel unrelated oh. to this series. Um, oh, no that I've kind of put aside and I'll look at it again at some point. I'm happy with it, but, and then um, wrote another novel with a writing partner of mine, which is kind of sci- pure sci-fi. All right. And um, I'm working on a standalone sci-fi novel right now that is actually, so, so, so Dean, you've read The Threat Below, right? The yeah. Threat Below is kind of, actually, I, I'd love to ask you a question. Where do you envision that, be, being set where do you think the location of that is if if mm. you, have you thought about that i suppose yeah i mean i always just assumed especially with the beginning you know so it's the last it's the last humans obviously they there's a hundred of them up a mountain so i always just assumed it was you know it's earth but i never really thought too much about where more specifically than that you know what part of the planet they were on it's just I, somewhere i would have thought I would have thought the uh, Mount Everest, and that's that's the most. I mean, just the highest points. No, I know thought. which would be which would make sense if these people had knowledge of the entire world. But when they're talking about the highest point in the world, they're kind of talking about the highest point of the world that they know, right? Oh, it's yeah. like, interesting, like that. It's like the like the Sioux, the the indigenous like Sioux tribes would call the Black Hills in South Dakota the highest point in the world because for them it was, even though it's they're not, you know. They're not even very high compared to other mountain ranges, right? But um, so in my mind, it's written and it becomes clear in Gallery of Mothers. But in my mind, it's uh, it's where I live now. It's Southern California. Okay. And oh. mountaintop is kind of, we have a fairly high mountain around here called Mount Baldy, which is like uh, 10,500 foot elevation or something. Okay. Like that. So that's so, kind of where you see it. Yeah. That's kind of how I imagine it. Um, so the reason why I tell you that is because Gallery of Mothers kind of extends some of the um, action into the deserts around um, around the mountains. Okay. But what books three and four are going to be looking at is what's been going on in Europe, Africa, Asia during all this time. Ah, so it's going to expand. There's whole right. continents between. So they don't really know what's going on in those other... There's whole oceans between these continents. And so the standalone sci-fi novel that I'm writing right now is actually set in what is China in that world. Okay. And then is setting up and introducing some of the characters and concepts that'll go into the official books three and four. So, so right even, now, even the standalone book is within the same universe, as it were. Yeah. It is, but it is a total standalone. Like, you don't yeah. need to read it as... You don't need to read the first two Baratheon's mm. books to understand it. And okay. it's more like... It's it's almost like looking back, people are like, oh my goodness, that, 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 was, that was that world. It's mm. very different. What made you decide to set this one in China? I think that I was um, very fascinated with the idea of like, so so without giving spoilers from the first book, but okay. Dean, you know, the, the nature of the monsters um, that live below and that mm-hmm. decimated humanity, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, I can give this without giving spoilers. <laughs> so so they, arose, <laughs> they arose in North America is how I, okay? Mm-hmm. And my thinking was that if those same kind of monsters arose in Europe, Africa, and China, they would be different than the ones that arise in North America, you know, for a number of different reasons. But even like, you know, a fox that lives on an island is different than a fox that lives on the mainland, right? Even evolutionarily, but then... So anyway, when I thought about... um, when I was thinking through the implications of that, uh, I thought it would be interesting to explore, you know, what would have been going on in China, how this kind of devastation and apocalypse would have played out differently in China. And, and in this, this world, this world is, there's basically just three kingdoms um, over on the other continent at this point. So, so yeah, there are some spoilers that I'm giving here, so I don't want to give <laughs> no, no, no. The world's a little bigger than it seems at the beginning of The Threat Below. 
Okay, because in the threat below, it does seem like a small world, to be fair. It is, and it is still a small world for them because they're completely mm-hmm. isolated. You know, it's like, and historically, like, you know, I think I think one of the interesting things is like, you know, at one point, the people who lived in Australia thought they were the only people in the world, right? The people yeah. who lived in Hawaii thought they were the only people in the world. The people who lived in, in, and there's a part of me that's almost sad sometimes that it seems like we know too much. We know everything. Like there's no undiscovered yeah. country. There's no undiscovered people. Um, and so I, I like creating this world where it's kind of like, that's all reset. And these people, mm-hmm. they're the only people that survived. They're the only people that are, that remain. Um, I, enjoy, I mean, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that slightly primitive aspect to it. And I, I really, really enjoyed their lifestyle. Actually. I don't know. I don't know if this is common, but when I saw the, how they lived in the mountain, I thought like, oh, I would like to live there. Like I like that without the, all the modern technology without a lot of the things that, that we have nowadays. <laughs> I really liked it. And I thought I would happily live here, but I think I'd rather be a Veritas than a Cognate because I think the Cognates, although they are, well, they're the upper class as it were, if you kind of take it in a classist system, but they're the ones following so many silly little rules that they've made up for themselves that even the Veritas aren't always going along with. And in the end, I thought the Veritas are kind of freer. They've kept their prayer and their song and different aspects of culture and the cognates are very brainwashed. So I think if I would live there, I would be a veritas. I mean, is that something that other people have said or is that an unusual take? I don't know. I, I think that, first of all, I think that that's probably my bias too. So it's probably, <laughs> it's probably in the book, right? Because, mm. but, but because, but in some ways, because I feel like I more naturally am a cognate, I live in my head a little too much. Mm-hmm. And so like the fact the veritas kind of live a more you know physical experience experiential life i think is appealing to me and something i try to do yeah Um, but yeah i mean i think that (laughs) the cognates are messed up you know they're like they've got a very um you know you know in some ways it would be a critique of religion of mine is it's like we we take this human experience and we try to really cut off a large amount of it and live within a certain Mm. you know intellectual or religious version of who we should be Hmm. and you know i'm not i'm not an atheist but i'm i was raised very religiously in a very tight-knit religious community and i have a lot of you know critiques of the way that i was was raised you know and in fact like the whole idea of there being this like tiny little village on the top of a mountain and everyone's saying don't go outside those walls it's very dangerous it's very bad for you don't go out um I think is influenced by the way that I was raised because mm-hmm. I was told like, don't listen to that music. Don't watch that movie. Don't read that book. You know, the world is only going to tear you down. And, um, you know, I think that, that it, it, it did kind of scare me. And that comes from the, yeah, for sure. The cognates are the ones that um, kind of need to create this society so that they stay in charge too. Cause there's no good reason for the, they're not even smarter. You know, no, that's the thing. Yeah. So they, they say, you know, even the brightest Veritas is duller than the dullest Cognate, but it's not true. <laughs> not true. No, exactly. And that stuff isn't ever true. You know what I mean? Like, but, but Iceland is horrified by the fact that Adirani scored better on, you know, their intelligence exam. Yeah. And she can't believe it. And she refuses to believe it. Um, she struggles know, with believing anything that wasn't what was taught to her like the indoctrination she struggles to go beyond that like she does even though she considers herself an independent thinker right like she yeah. would and she is stubborn like one of the things one of the things that i think is good about iceland is she's not a submissive person like mm-hmm. she does kind of push for you know beyond what other people tell her but you're right you're absolutely right the way she was raised is the foundation like she has a lot of lessons to learn because just foundationally she accepts everything that was told to her yeah whereas ad doesn't he's a lot more you know he he's the one that drags her beyond the wall in the beginning i guess he's the one that is very curious about well is there another way we could have arranged this society like this this is, can't be the only system and she's in, in shock sometimes at his rebellious thoughts like these things have never occurred to her sometimes you know and although you say yeah she considers herself a free thinker she's still very stuck within well, but this is in the code and this is like what i was taught and she struggles to go beyond that you know which is it's an it's a really nice contrast those two characters but yet they're still the best of friends you know <laughs> yeah which is you know for me i had a really good time writing iceland and Ad- adorani's 
conflicts because like, I mean, just a background for me, like it's kind of a little indulgent. Like I was a philosophy minor in, in undergrad mm -hmm. and like I, you know, I was raised religiously, but I'm, I think about that all the time. So like Iceland being an atheist, Natarani being a believer, I had a really good time kind of, because those are almost like two parts of myself. Mm -hmm. um, and so, it's yeah. Like Iceland, your, in, your inner, your inner dialogue, isn't it? Yeah, it really is like my inner dialogue, get, giving them characters and giving them yeah. a chance to bump into each other. And the interesting thing I think is that there's, Iceland and Adirani still have a lot of love and respect for each other, even as they, and that's why sometimes I think Iceland is so frustrating because it's like, you know, she loves and respects Adirani, but she's so dismissive of the things that he says and believes that it's just, it's like hard to read. It's disrespectful. But I yeah. really believe like if you're raised in a certain value and you never, a value system and you never hear from outside of it, it's very easy to just think you just dismiss people that try to tell you otherwise, you know, like, oh, well, that's, you know, I, yeah, I hear you. It's totally ridiculous what you're saying, but I, I yeah. you know. <laughs> so there's, there's like an arrogance of Iceland, but she's also, she's the daughter of the leader of the, what they, you know, the last village in the entire world. So she, she has a lot of, she thinks it's deserved. Yeah, I mean, she's going to be the heir, right? She's going to be the leader of humanity, essentially. So exactly, and yeah. it's funny with Nicholas as well because he all, you know, he's I suppose in a way he's a good leader in terms of his principles, but he's just not the strongest leader, and he wants to kind of modernize certain things and take away the division between the classes. But then you know he'll still go to the front of the queue to get his water and things. You know, he's like, I'm going to go exactly. get my own water, but I'm still going to go to the front of the queue. You know. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. He's like, well, no, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna be. You know, he doesn't want to be inconvenienced by his principles. Yeah. <laughs> I think that there's something about Nicholas. For me, um, he wants to be. He wants to be liked, and he wants to be thought of as being a good leader more than he wants to be a good leader. Like he doesn't want to mm. work that hard and make the sacrifices and the difficult decisions to be a good leader. But he really desperately wants everyone to think he's a good leader. So, um, yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, I didn't do this on purpose necessarily, but kind of after the fact, after I wrote this, I realized there really aren't like the kids are kind of on their own in this book. Like there really are no admirable grownups. There are no like admirable. There's no mentors, really. There's I thought Ad's dad was pretty admirable. But apart from that, there's none. Agree. Really. Agree. But none that. I mean, I don't want to spoil anything. But yeah. <laughs> But, you know, there's no Obi-Wan Kenobi in this book. There's no Gandalf. There's like, there, yeah, there's, yeah. these kids are really on their own to try to figure this out. A yeah. Bit, I mean, know? Nicholas, you're right. Because although I wanted to think he was a good leader, he, wa he was an all right dad. He was kind of a crappy husband. Like, if you can't even lead within your, you know, how can you lead the whole of humanity? And he really was quite weak at that. <laughs> you know? He really was. Yeah. And he, he let Trenton kind of walk all over him. He allowed himself to be manipulated because the way that I see it is Nicholas is every, he's, he's definitely smart enough to contend yeah. with Trenton, but he just doesn't because he just doesn't want to have to bother with it. It's just too hard. It's too difficult. And he, he just easily takes a back seat, even when he might even disagree with what's being said he's like i don't want to bother with it it's too much it's too yeah much, too much so i want to mention two things the first is my without really spoiling too much but my saddest scene in the book is when we have two of the i guess two of the thread belows but we see a lot of scenes of them as as children um and there's just a a mean little kid who keeps, you know, he presses the pain button all the time, the one that is only supposed to be pushed by Mr. Sean and just causes poor pain to these creatures. And and that was really sad for me because they, they're they so confused about their own existence. And I mean, the book does raise philosophical issues about how to treat, you know, creatures that you've created or how to treat creatures of a different species and this kind of thing. And there's just a sad scene where actually now they're being treated really, really poorly. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I agree. And it's so it's interesting, because by the way, I definitely want you to read the sequel, because that character who pushes the pain button is a main character. Oh, that surprises me. But wow, that's that's really intriguing. Now. Right. Yeah, and, and actually, you. Um, yeah, yeah, I, mean, I think you'll enjoy it. I think and, and that's gonna he's he's a character like he. Um, He's got some some stuff going on on his own too. Okay, so I'm not very interesting. Um, cool. 
Cool. But yeah, I mean, that, whole, that whole long sequence where is kind of like where the threat below came from in the first place and wrote it from the pers- kind of the first person perspective of those two children. Um, I had a really good time with that. I'm really happy with the way that turned out. I thought that was really um, interesting. You know, it's funny. I had one of one of the reviewers said about it that they really liked how it was an int- it was like the first person of an intelligent creature, but clearly not human, which I thought mm-hmm. was fine. I was like, oh yeah, I could kind of see that. I was very influenced by Frankenstein when I wrote that whole mm. section. Um, I love Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. I sure. love, you know, because and I came at it probably from the way a lot of people did, but I saw the movies and like the popular perception of Frankenstein first. Yeah. When I read the book, I was like, oh, like the creature is smart. And he's sensitive and he feels things. And like, he's not this grunting, you know, behemoth. And I, I really love that. And so, you know, I'm a, I'm a father, I have two kids. And I just, I do think that if you bring people into this world, you owe them so much, you know? Mm. So the way that these two children were brought into the world and then, you know, essentially abandoned um, is really heartbreaking to me too. And when they, and and you're exactly right, like that they had to go through pain without any context or any comfort, any explanation, a really terrible thing to have to go through. I mean, we all, we all go through it, but um, maybe not as specifically as they Mm -hmm. do. And then the last thing I'd like to raise is just my favorite character. Uh, I don't know if this is common or not, but my favorite character is Eva Shone, actually. Oh, yeah, she's so I have a hard time ranking them, but she's like definitely one like <laughs> I love her I love I love her so much, and I love her um her mix of like innocence and wildness and kind of like violence and passion is just all I guess I she's that. kind of the noble savage, right? like she is a monster, but mm. she has good principles and she's very loyal and um, all this kind of stuff. So I, re- I really like her. I think she's the most compelling character. I like all the characters, but she was the one that I was like, this one I really, really love, you know? And she's she's like, she's going to be there till the end helping, you know? Yeah, I love her too. And I love her, you know, I, I told you like, it's a lifelong struggle of mine now to contend with faith and religion and stuff like that. One of the things I love about Eva Shone is she has a real pure devotion I think you know even though it's you know it's <laughs> don't want to get too spoiler but she has a she has a very what I think is um she has devotion for the reason why you should have devotion it's like she she has a passion for life and a passion for um connecting to something larger than herself that I think is very admirable I love her too and and again you're gonna like the sequel because there's a lot of stuff <laughs> that she goes through and that she and Iceland go through um, that I think you'll find to be very, very interesting. Um, I think it's cool that you mention her because um, a lot of people don't mention her as a favorite, mm. but she's absolutely one of my favorites. Yeah, so, for sure. She's And I I think from the moment she shows up until the end of the book is just where the book really hits its, um, yes. I don't know, where it really hits its stride. It is. You know? And that's around the time that I didn't want to give any spoilers after that moment, yeah. really. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think up until that point, like, you know, I think it's a good story. I think it's an intriguing story. I think you're like, what's going on? And then to me, I think from that point on, you're like, oh, this is not exactly what I thought it was, but it's definitely interesting. Like it's, you know, I a lot of people have had told me they have that experience of like, wow, I, I did not think this is the direction it was no, going in. It, but, it, yeah. It's very different than what I was expecting as well. Yeah. And then it just keeps just snowballing into different twists and different things happening that I wasn't expecting. Um, yeah. But but PJ, before we kind of wrap up, do you have anything that you'd like to ask? Um, I want to ask, um, so yeah, the cover again looks like more like a science fiction or a fantasy book. And nevertheless, um, I was wondering, and I'm on the outside, you haven't read it yet, um, but I'm just wondering, was the book cover there to misguide a bit? Because that's what it sounds like a bit, that you're trying to not, um, it's, it's like people go there with an expectation and then you really 
setting them off course and already begins with the cover, with buying the book and they're expecting yeah. something else. Was that your intention or? Well, you know, it's, in, it's interesting you bring up the cover because when I first released the book, the book had a different cover, right. um, which I was happy with. And I mean, I'm still happy with it. Like, um, mm-hmm. but actually, hold on. Let me also... <laughs> yeah. So when the first, when the book was first released, it had this. Oh, okay. Completely different. Okay. Ah. Completely different. So you see, you have like mountaintop, you have cloud line, you yeah. have a yeah. image of yes, down yes. below. Very, wow. very different. And then right. like on the back, a picture of Iceland. Okay. Iceland. Um, and I mean, very different than it looks now. Mm. Yes. You know, obviously. It's night and day. Yeah, it's completely different. Right. So I'm very happy with the first one, but I would say that like given the, genre that the book is in which is YA the the cover really didn't fit and um I was getting that feedback from a whole lot of people that the that the cover I mean honestly this cover to me and again I like this cover but it also almost looks like maybe this would be like a Tolkien book or something like that okay yeah, almost looks kind of engraved or something like that mm-hmm. and um so I wouldn't say that it's a, an attempt to misdirect at all, but it is, okay. it, it's interesting that you picked up on it because it, it, it wouldn't be my first impulse. It was an attempt to like fit the genre. But I mean, Dean, you, you'd probably agree. Like this book spans genres. I, it does. Clearly, yeah. it, it's not clearly in any one genre. You know, it's like, I have a hard time. It's YA, it's post-apocalyptic, it's sci-fi. It's, it's very uh, philosophical. And you mentioned you'd studied philosophy, so did both me yeah, and DJ, yeah. you know, so there's a lot of philosophical themes in it as well as this, obviously there's little bits of romance, there's this and there's that. There's a lot of different, you know, there's yeah. some action scenes. I, I think it is, it is genre spanning. Um, and I think so, somehow both covers fit it, which is weird because they're both very different yeah. covers. Yeah. And by the way, I'm, I am happy with this cover. The, the artist did a fantastic job and, um, but it is, it was not the first one like this when I was writing the book this is what I had in my head the whole time yeah so so absolutely really good question um but in some ways I don't even know what the cover would be for what this book is exactly Mm -hmm. to be not uh misdirecting in some way okay well can I can I ask you about uh what uh is there a moment that really inspired you in your life to write this novel was it like an event or a scene i mean maybe several but is there one specific yeah. that really brought no, this there is there is one there's definitely one so so i used to live in pennsylvania mm-hmm. in a flat part of pennsylvania by the way like where there were no mountains there were barely hills and then i moved here to california where i live near near mountains and mm-hmm. um I really love the mountains. I really love it. Yeah, me just, too, yeah. I can't get over how um, they make me feel. And so I go hiking just about every day. And sometimes, especially in June and May around here, there's something called June gloom where the clouds come in from the ocean and they really make the tops of the mountains look like islands, oh, wow. you know? Okay. So I've been, so I love going hiking those times. And I, I love like going under the clouds, above the clouds, stuff like that, which happens pretty commonly. So I'd just go on these hikes and I'd be above the clouds and I'd think, oh, what if, what if like I only was ever in this place and I knew <laughs> that something down below those clouds had killed everyone and I was up here for safety purposes, wouldn't that be crazy? So it was really just like being up. I mean, it's literally a book I would have never written if I hadn't moved to California. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, wow. even the water scarcity idea is like, Mm-hmm. You never think of water yeah. scarcity in Pennsylvania. You think about water scarcity all the time in California. Right. So, um, like, I never even thought about where water came from when I lived in Pennsylvania. And when you live in California, you really have to pay attention to water sources. Where's this? Where does this creek come from? Because it might be dried up in three months. You know, is the water of- being poisoned by threat billows? All the usual it, questions. You know, it really matters. <laughs> you know? So, um, so absolutely. So it just kind of came from. Yeah, it, 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 and then just to add one more thought, Dean, I think you'll think this is interesting. When I was up on top of the mountain and there were clouds and I was like, what if there were things down there that killed me? I thought, oh, this is kind of like Mount Olympus. This is kind of like the Greeks. Yes. You know? But then I further thought, oh, wouldn't it be interesting if the Greek gods were afraid of their creations and because mm-hmm. the creations were trying to kill them? So so that kind of was where this idea all yeah. um also, a, also an ancient Greek history student here. 
And oh, okay. yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> Greece, Greece is like I have to visit Greece at some point. I that's it's on my bucket list and has been for a long time as well. That's the Greek mythology. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, I'm going to wrap up with uh, the last question we ask everyone, um, which is a little bit off course, and I never give anyone kind of prep time for it. But it's okay. as a writer, if there's one book that exists that you wish you had been the person to write, what would it be? Huh. So. That's interesting for one book. I, I would say as an author, it would probably be Lois Lowry. I don't know if you're familiar with Lois Lowry, like the, the giver um, quartet of books that she's written. Um, I just, I love the way she mixes kind of the inner and the outer world. She creates these outer worlds that are, to me, really compelling. Um, kind of like what you were saying with like, oh, I'd like to live in Mountaintop for a while. I always mm. feel like I'm reading her, wor- her works. I'd want to live in those places. But I feel like she captures the inner state of people even more, which I really appreciate. So, I mean, I think maybe I'd say like the giver or that kind of quartet altogether. Um, I, yeah, I think that that would be my, my answer, but okay. I'm impressed. I'm impressed by so many writers, to be honest with you. Like, <laughs> but, but if I had to choose one, I think I'd choose her. I, I think that her work is really compelling and I, I, I'm really impacted by it. I mean I grew up reading C.S. Lewis so like if I wrote the Chronicles of Narnia I would probably be very excited about that as well mm-hmm. there you go. Um, to go to Northern Ireland yeah we have a C.S. Lewis square with little uh, statues of all the characters and things what? in Belfast I lived just a few streets from one of his houses at yeah. least away yeah so yeah really there you go. Yeah. Okay. Okay. well I, I mean I, I continue to be and have always been a huge C.S. Lewis fan so like his space trilogy um, you know, and again, the way he works philosophy into his his writing yes. has always been a theology as well. Yes, totally. yeah, theology and all that. And, and I think C.S. Lewis was someone who truly contended with the implications of his beliefs. On like, you know, my criticism of a lot of Christians or a lot of religious people is they don't really they don't wrestle with it. You know, they just kind yeah. of things and don't look at the the shadow or the dark side of some of their beliefs. I think C.S. Lewis did, so I, I appreciate that about him. Um, oh. Yeah, between the two of them, somewhere in between the two of them, I would love to reside for sure. <laughs> well, I guess to wrap up, I'm going to ask you, would you like to plug your website or where we can get the book or anything like that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so my books are available on Amazon, obviously, in hardcover, paperback and audio uh, oh. and Kindle. Um, also, if you want to just like follow me on Instagram, Jason Seth Latchaw, um, I'm happy to send people books too. You know, I, for me, I want people to read, read it. So, you know, connect with me. Love, love to do that. I think <laughs> website, I think is JS Latchell. If you Google it, you'll find it. We'll put a link to the site anyway in the, yeah. in the podcast description. Yeah. And we'll tag you really on social be, media. When, I should be better at that. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, follow me on Instagram. I'd love to connect with you. Um, Thank you so much, guys. It really, really awesome. It has been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for calling. And feel free to send the second one. I'd love to read the first one first, but it just sounds awesome. I can't wait to read it. Yeah, Jason, thank you so much. Have a great day. All right, great meeting both of you. Yeah, you too. Bye. Well, BJ, that was that was a nice unexpected treat. Coincidence once again. Jason calling in there to talk all about Threat Below, which is the first part of the Brathius Legacy. Wow. Jason Latshaw. So great. I'll put a link to him in the in the um, in the episode. It was nice to talk to him. Thanks yeah. uh, for calling in. We're going to so take much, a yeah. quick ad break, and we'll be back in about one minute, um, and then we'll close off as always with our recommendations. Ooh. Guys, check out Newsly. That's N U W S L Y Newsly dot me M E. Uh, if you go on there, you can get free uh, access to well, a whole load of audio, including the Books Boys podcast. And if you use the promo Books 2021, you can also get one month free premium uh, subscription. So what Newsly is, is an audio app. You can get it for iOS and Android. It picks up web articles and reads them in a human voice. Stop scrolling. Start listening. For the first time in the history of the internet, the entire web is listenable. Articles from any topics that you choose. Everything from sports to science to bitcoins, uh, celebrity news like the Kardashians, articles, everything's all on there as well as podcasts including ours from over 50 countries. So check out newsly.me.
I'm Fearful Jesuit. Well, that's my pseudonym at least. I keep my identity secret because I'm the host of a show called The Paranoid Strain, which takes a skeptical view of conspiracy theories. And some conspiracy theory fans are a tad touchy about that subject. My show is designed to help make sense of the insane ideas that seem to pop up constantly these days. Where do they come from? Why do people believe them? And how does their belief impact the rest of us? I'm inviting you to check out a very special episode we recently launched. It's a concept album about living through the year 2020 in a very conspiracy-addled United States of America, featuring a full voice cast and dozens of original songs by our show's dedicated band, the Paranoid Strain Orchestra. It's called 9116, and it's available now in all of your favorite podcast apps. Just look up the Paranoid Strain and click on the logo with the terrified eyeball. Well, my recommendation uh, for you all is, well, I've got, I've, got, I've got so many books as always to recommend. Um, well, talking about Latin American literature, once again, big fan of, of, of the old Latin American literature. And I have recommended now Mario Vargas Llosa, uh, the Peruvian author, mm-hmm. and also Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Mm-hmm. So um, what, what I recommend in talking about Latin American literature um, Luis Sepulveda. Have you ever heard of him? No, I haven't, to be honest. So Luis Sepulveda, I just I just read to my to, 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 to deep sadness, he passed away um two years ago. That that's very upsetting, actually. Um he is a beautiful author who creates very short novels, novellas that are usually intended for children. He is an absolute master in his craft, but they're the kind of children children books like The Little Prince. They're really uh, with beautiful illustrations, usually. Very short, very concise. And, yeah, I mean, if you like The Little Prince and you like that short, fable-esque hmm. vibe, philosophy, always always philosophical, um, I really recommend uh, Luis Sepulveda. Now, Luis uh, Sepulveda is uh, from Chile, uh, a country which I think has created some master authors, including Isabel Allende, I know you're not a fan of, but I do love her book, eh, La Mante Japonese, The Japanese Lover, a much more recent book. Highly recommend that. And also uh, Roberto Bolaño, who mainly lived in Barcelona, is famous as well for some um, dark tales. Um, But Luis Pulveda is someone who just writes concise, short novels. Sadly, most of them have not been translated, which is a deep, deep. Lack of, of 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 cultural and literary awareness. There should be a, a protest about that. But then we but say his, to read them in the Spanish anyway. I mean, this month well, I yes, really enjoyed indeed, reading in yes. Spanish. However, his famous book has been translated. It's called "The Old Man Who Read Love Stories," which is not for children, but it is short. <laughs> it's got a very Gabriel Garcia Marquez vibe about a man um, living in. Uh, Diam- it's often set in Brazil, though. So this right. man is. This man is living kind of with, with tribes in Brazil, but he's not really from a tribe and he's reading love stories. And he's reading all kinds, of, he, he reads all the classics. Too. And it's kind of like just this man between two worlds and there's what's romanticism. He, I really just remember him trying to imagine Venice and never having seen it. That was really relevant. So my recommendation are uh, the three books I, I've read so far of his, which were all equally uh, brilliant. Sorry, I read four. So the three, one of them I like less. The Old Man Who Read Love Stories, um, the classic. Um, one was um, also a, a lovely book called The Story of a Seagull and the Cat Who Taught Her to Fly. Historia de una gaviota y de un gato que le enseñó a volar. And that's a beautiful story about a, a seagull, a, a pregnant seagull who gives birth in the last seconds um, and just dies because she's full of uh, petrol oil. She she accidentally fell into petrol oil kind of spillage, and she died. It, actually, stories are always environmental in some sense. And the cat, it's said in Hamburg in Germany, a cat just finds the egg. Um, sorry, he's entrusted the egg by the seagull because okay. she's just about to die and gives the egg. And the cat has to teach the new uh, seagull chick how to fly. And it's absolutely um, moving and beautiful novel. And lastly, but not least, sorry, I'm giving three recommendations. I just have to, Dean, because this is an author I, I really That's love. That's fine. 
And the last one I, I read was um, I got when it came out. Actually, I paid I paid the full I paid the full money, which I don't usually do. I usually buy books that came out a lot before in the past. And that's one of the latter books. It's called Historia de un Pero Llamado Leal, a, history, a story of a, of a dog called Loyal. And it's uh, also about a dog who's, yeah, it's, it's set in tribal, American tribal landscape. And he's, um, and humanity is cruel to him, but he tries to be loyal to, to humans as well. It's very moving. Hmm. Highly recommend it. Luis, Luis. Okay. Well, I have one recommendation and one anti-recommendation. Oh. Um, I I don't know if you'll predict where this is going, uh, PJ, but Mm. first, my recommendation, um, I just have to give something good, and that's Dickens. Um, (laughs) Great Expectations. Uh, I think I recommended way back Oliver Twist in episode four, um, but I don't talk enough about Dickens because he's my favorite author. Um, I just read all his books already. But um, Great Expectations is one of his shorter ones. It's very accessible. It's about Pip. He goes off. He thinks, you know, he's, they're all poor. He's not quite an orphan, but, you know, they all have this similar poor orphan boy type stories. Mm. And off he goes and he believes he's got great expectations. He believes that Mrs. Uh, Miss Haversham or something is, is going to um, kind of provide for him. And it turns out that the person, she's just a mean old lady. And there's a twist as to who might actually be helping him out and giving him these expectations and giving him this better life that he's hoping to to walk into. But it's just your usual kind of London tale. It's all the typical Dickens tropes are there. It's in my top three, along with David Copperfield and Oliver Twist. So if you think you might like that type of thing, I'd really recommend uh, Great Expectations. My anti-recommendation, PJ, I I read a play... Um, ah, then, uh, I'm sorry, man. I, I read uh, "Waiting for Godot" by by uh, a certain Beckett upon the recommendation joint of yourself and Alex, our and mutual friend. Our mutual friend. I I didn't like it. Now you already know this. We talked about this ad nauseum, but uh, I I thought it was <laughs> I thought it was garbage. You know, I'm, I'm sorry. This um, is this, everyone. <laughs> this is possibly the greatest play of the 20th century being called garbage by by Dean. So I don't know. I don't know where this is heading. I'm not going to dwell on it, but I just, you know, look, don't forget, we're used to reading and reviewing Shakespeare. Very elegant plays, very verbose, very long-winded. Compared to that, this all seemed very simplistic and childlike. That's all. And let me tell you, people, I highly recommend Waiting for Godot, <laughs> Waiting for Gods, in other senses, who never comes. It's It's a very existentialist play mm. about two individuals waiting for meaning and waiting for a person to arrive and there's a reason why it's got dull because it's obviously yeah 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 God. now this has um, never happened before pj where we have completely disagreed about something on the show like I, I, yeah that's true enough yeah you anyway, really love this and i i thought i love it, it. I, I really love it it, so. it, it actually got me i, I read it our mutual friend recommended it to me back when we worked together in, in Tokyo and actually got me back into reading uh, like plays mm. in general. So I really, uh, I love it. And I'm, I, I'm, 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 um, I'm almost vexed. I should say. Oh, well, quaking in my boots. In you my can country, find this online and you can read it in an hour. So if anyone's curious to see, you know, the play that divided the books, boys, you can, uh, you can get it online, you know, <laughs> next, it's like next episode just never came to. We're done. That's because, it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yes. That could ruin it. But I'm not going to talk about it. I, I was just, I'm not going to talk about the plot. There is no plot. Um, but you know, there's no really for God. It's a very, it's a very uh, deep plot. Uh, well, Where are you going there's a bit this? they talk about at the start. It's not even factually accurate. So they talk at the start. There's a lot of not. I've written down in my notes several times nonsense and more nonsense. And this it's is nonsense. It's an absurd display, then. It's well, mostly nonsense. It, it, but nothing no, has meaning. It's, it's not absurdism if you're just doing it, it nothing, to get. Nothing has meaning. It's like when these kids on social media do wacky stuff to seem wacky. They were doing absurdism for the sake of it. It didn't feel natural to me, you know? It just felt like, oh, I better throw in some mad dialogue here because I'm meant to be absurdist. But do you know what I didn't like? Factually inaccurate. They talk about how could the four Gospels all have been written by the, you know, there, there's discrepancies be- between them and all four of them were supposed to have been there and seen Jesus. Well, that's not true. They were written afterwards. That's not even right. At no uh, point are the people uh, who wrote the four Gospels meant to have been there and seen Jesus crucified. That's, that's not, that's, that's a factual inaccuracy. But, but, Dean, maybe the whole point is, maybe it is supposed to be an accuracy. They're just supposed to be two lads, you know, Vladimir and Estragon, um, 
just on the rampage, you know. Well, maybe. I didn't see much rampaging. Guys, I don't know. Look, it's I'm not going to dwell on it, but that's my anti-recommendation. So there you go. And because this divided us, people are probably going to be more interested in this than anything else we've talked about on the entire yes, show. Yes, it's going to be. Oh, my, did you, oh, this will be on, on social media. OMG, the, the Dean boys, the, the, the books boys. <laughs> I don't think I I, I really recommend this, lads. Um, and um, and women. Actually, Curtis, I say, lads, uh, one thing I don't like about Beckett is that he insisted that this play be only played by a man. Actually, there is a big problem, Dean, and oh. legal issues about women wanting to act in this play. And having to rewrite the play, I think they had to change it. Something waiting for Godolda or whatever it was. Wow! But actually, Beckett made a big point about women not being able to play, and I really don't. I think what's I really don't understand that. I thought that's it, it doesn't sound like a nice. It didn't sound like a nice man. I can say that, but I really mm. do love the play. I think it's such a pity. That's a, that's big. That's big controversy right there. Yeah, that's pointless and silly. You know, that, but whatever. But. We've basically talked about everything. I suppose the last thing I want to do before we close with the song is just to tell everyone, again, you've got all of our bonus shows, plus you get this show early, and you can get some t-shirts at patreon.com slash booksboys. But also, if you just go to booksboys.com, you can get links to, you know, the show notes are on there, links to our social media, all the different places you can listen to the podcast. Um, Plus, we're on Radio Oxen, so hello to everyone there. Um, and uh, as I say, the Instagram and everything, there's lots of fun stuff. I post at least once a day, every single day on social media. Um, so that's all on there. Um, and you also get links to our music on Spotify and so a whole bunch of different projects and different things. So booksboys.com is a good portal for all the stuff that we're doing there, uh, including the Playboys with the uh, the A-level thing. So if you've got a kid studying for A-level English Lit, uh, all the plays that are, that are uh, being discussed are all on our Playboys as well. And you can get it for like £2.50 a month. So there you go. That's there. It's just, it's a bargain. I have a special treat. Uh, I was talking to a musician, uh, Rachel Sage. This is a very oh. special girl who I've, what well, girl, lady, who I've I've been a big fan of um, for about 13 years or so. Yeah. Um, maybe maybe longer, maybe 15 years. And um, I asked, you know, if we could we could play one of her songs on the show and she, she gave me permission to do that. So I'm going to play, it's not really like one of her, favorite like tracks or one of like the most listened on spotify or anything like that it's just one that hit me and that i really liked and it's called it's so hard from ballads and burlesque uh, burlesque and ballads or something like that the album's called but it's the 2004 album uh, it's so hard by rachel sage and um it's a really really lovely song she's a really great um singer so i'm very very pleased to be able to play it um so if the dj would spin that record and i should mention because we didn't mention but we've been joined all all episode by little alfred there he is. There he is, the big lad himself. And BJ will be back in about a month. All right. See you then, everyone. So you show what you know and give me heart to believe in the most courageous part of the pictures I would like to paint. So you show what you have to offer me. Operation almost empathy in the dark side of yours matches mine. But it's so hard, it's so hard, it's so hard to be with you. It's so hard, it's so hard when the rain comes blue. So is this secure and strong? Who did you impart some light to her? Who could I become under your sun? How can I ever stand alone again? I believe you to be a soulful friend when you were the worst across that line. But it's so
Books Boys was presented by The Dean and PJ Burke in association with Thaddeus Penguin Productions. Ah. This episode was brought to you by our sponsor, Is This a Holiday? If you would like to get in touch, you can email us at booksboys at hotmail.com or visit us at booksboys.com. The intro uses Driving in the 70s from the Of Soundtracks and Garage Bands EP by Trapdoor. And the outro uses Dog's Light by Bravo Max from the album of the same name. All music used is either podsafe or used with permission. If you'd like to support the show, go to patreon.com slash booksboys, get the show early, and all of our bonus Boy shows and you can also check out our music on Spotify or Apple Music. Thank you kindly for listening to us. Please tell your friends. And come back next time for another episode of Books Boys. Read some books! Um, well, what I recommend actually is... Um, sorry, can we put that out there? I was going to mention. It gave me no time to think. One second. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.